almost 400 feet tall, a stainless steel pin-like monument near the banks of the Liffey River pierces the Dublin sky. This massive shiny needle is supposed to be a symbol of Dublin and the idea was that it would be ready for the millennium. But in typical laid-back Irish fashion, it wasn't completed until 2003. Because in the words of one Dubliner I spoke to, he said that the millennium kind of snuck up on us. I'm talking about the Dublin Spire, which is by far the tallest and most prominent structure in the downtown area. And in typical irreverent Irish fashion, the spire has inspired a number of nicknames. The nail in the pail, the stiletto in the ghetto, the pin in the bin, and how about the stiffy by the liffy, or if you will, the erection at the intersection. This was Dublin's big chance to erect a monument that says something about the city. Now that I think about it, erect may not be the best choice of words. So my question is, does this monument, as impressive as it may be, do justice to the city? There is so much historical and cultural complexity to Dublin. Is the massive needle-like stiffy by the Liffey the best they could do? Hello and welcome to Snapshots from Europe Travelogue. I'm your host, Brian Unger, providing the historical, cultural, and geographical backstories for some of the greatest destinations in Europe to help you get a fuller appreciation for these places when you visit. This is the 10th and final episode in Season 1 of Snapshots from Europe Travelogue. And since day one, I got to tell you, I have been dying to introduce all of you to Dublin. And today is the day. Now, I've stood in the shadow of the Dublin Spire, and it is a spectacle. And when you go to Dublin, you're definitely going to want to go and see this thing. But I wonder, does this monument truly capture the character of the city? Dublin is bursting with a kind of lyrical magic and playfulness that few other cities can match. Music, poetry, literature, and history are percolating through its cobblestones. So in today's episode, we're going to do a virtual walk through the city and stop at many of the landmarks and attractions to tell the story of Dublin and of Ireland. Along the way, we'll encounter castles and fairies. We'll meet poets, writers, and a busty woman. We'll enjoy some Irish crack, and it wouldn't be a trip to Dublin without enjoying a few libations. And best of all, I want to send you to jail. All of the sites we are going to visit are in the center of the city and are all are within an easy walking distance of each other. Touring these sites will be part of our effort to get the feel of Dublin. And we'll finish up at Dublin Spire. We'll see if maybe there's more to the stiffy by the liffy than meets the eye. So I can't wait to dive in. So giddy up, let's go to Dublin. To begin our story of Dublin, we have to get an understanding of the big picture of Irish history and culture, which I will do in very broad strokes. The Celts first arrived in Ireland from mainland Europe around 500 BCE, and there's no reliable information on how or when the Celts became the dominant Irish ethnic group. 
They established a society revolving around warrior kings who gathered groups of families into regional kingdoms. Loyalty to clans came first and alliances between clans was fluid. Eventually, there were more than 300 clans in Ireland and they were constantly feuding with one another, which meant that the Celts never united as a single nation. It also meant that an invading army could not destroy one main capital or kill one king to bring the entire island to its knees. Celtic culture was a multi-headed monster, tough to slay. They had well-established religious beliefs headed by Druid priests who conducted pagan solar calendar rituals among these megalithic stone circles. Now, the one you're most familiar with is Stonehenge, and this is similar to that, but they're much more rudimentary by comparison, but they're much more intimate and accessible. Ireland is home to more than 200 of these evocative stone circles. My brother lives in Ireland, and he took me to see one. You can walk right among them. And I'm not one to buy into this whole Druid thing, but I have to say, you kind of get a spiritual feel when you visit one of these stone circles. Don't know if there's something to it or not. Another aspect of early Celtic religion and folklore was a firm belief in fairies. There's a fascinating roster of really interesting fairies who perform all kinds of different functions, but the one you are probably most familiar with is the leprechaun. Which brings me to my first suggestion for your trip to Dublin. Now, it's not at the top of the list, but it is a lot of fun. If you want to get to know a bit about Irish folklore and mythology, pay a visit to the National Leprechaun Museum. It opened up in 2010, and it claims to be the first leprechaun museum in the world. Now, I'm going to wager it's also the only leprechaun museum in the world. The Irish Times newspaper has referred to it as the Louvre of leprechauns. Love it. The owner calls it a storytelling tourist attraction designed to give, uh, give visitors the leprechaun experience and introduce visitors to Ireland's rich storytelling history. Visitors to the museum will follow a guided tour involving several different rooms, each serving as sets for the stories and information about Irish fairies and leprechauns. You'll learn the basics of leprechaun folklore, including what it is that defines a leprechaun. There's a tunnel full of optical illusions and a room where furniture and other items are unusually large to give the effect that the visitor has become smaller in size. It's great for fun pictures. It's a playful and fun exhibit, but don't take it too seriously. Now, it should be noted that a significant percentage of the Irish population still believe in fairies. I love this story. When the international airport in Shannon, Ireland was being built, Irish bulldozer drivers refused to plow the earth because apparently one of the runways would have disturbed a fairy fort. Well, by the third century, a new belief system took hold in Ireland thanks to the work of arguably the most successful missionary of all time, the patron saint of Ireland, St. Patrick. He was actually a Roman Briton who had been captured by Celts on one of their raids on England, and he was brought back to Ireland as a slave, and his job was to tend sheep. He was able to escape, and he went back to England. But when he was back in England, he had... He had 
kind of developed a burden for the Celts. So he decided to return to Ireland six years later. He was able to establish a national church and more than 300 churches throughout Ireland. And he is said to have personally baptized more than 100,000 people. Now, how was he so successful at converting these Irish Celts? Well, they worship the sun god. And if you know anything about Irish weather, you might not be surprised to hear that that religion wasn't working out too well for them. So they swarmed to Catholicism. Now, the centuries between the fall of the Roman Empire and the medieval time period, that's known as the Dark Ages. This is because Europe was disorganized. It had no central government, very little education. It was pretty much every man for himself. But there were a few places on the margins of Europe that kept scholarship alive. Monks who had sequestered themselves on island monasteries on the Irish Sea continued to preserve and cultivate Christian scholarship. They produced many magnificent illuminated manuscripts that are absolute works of art. One of the best examples of this is the renowned Book of Kells. Produced sometime in the 8th century, this can be viewed at Trinity College in Dublin, and it is one of the top tourist attractions in the city. A visit to the beautiful Trinity Library itself is enough reason to visit. But to see this extraordinary 1,200-year-old manuscript with its exquisite illustrations with your own eyes, that's pretty awesome. There's something you put on your list of things to do when you travel to Dublin. Ireland has continued to be defined by Catholicism and remains one of the most Catholic countries in the world. How Catholic are they? If you are a native Dubliner, you are likely to have been born in a Catholic hospital, educated at a Catholic school, married in a Catholic church, have children named by a Catholic priest, counseled by Catholic marriage advisors, dried out in Catholic clinics for treatment of alcoholism, maybe have been operated on in Catholic hospitals, and buried by Catholic rites. The Catholic Church in Ireland has for centuries provided a cradle-to-grave social welfare system. This next example could be the most vivid example of how pervasive Catholicism is in Ireland. Years ago, Flight attendants on the National Airlines, which was Aer Lingus, had to be ordered to stop crossing themselves when the plane took off from Dublin International Airport because it wasn't the most reassuring sight for the passengers. I guess not. Now, the best way when you're in Dublin to connect with this part of Irish culture and history is, well, why not visit St. Patrick's Cathedral? It was founded in 1191 on the site where it is said that Patrick first baptized the pagan chieftains. This cathedral is rife with over 800 years of Irish history and culture. It's a beautiful building, both inside and out. It's definitely worth a tour. And when you tour the building, you'll find the final resting place of Jonathan Swift. He's the guy who was the author of Gulliver's Travel, and he was also the dean of the cathedral for a time. But if you really want to pay homage to St. Patrick, maybe visit Dublin on March 17th. This is, of course, St. Patrick's Day, the biggest day on the calendar worldwide to celebrate all things Irish. 
But it seems that the biggest thing the Irish celebrate on St. Patrick's Day, maybe it's not St. Patrick. Worldwide, over 13 million pints of Guinness beer are served on March 17th. That's 819% more than on any other day of the year. So if we want to get to know Ireland, it isn't enough to get to know only St. Patrick. Maybe you also want to get to know St. Guinness. After paying your respects to the patron saint of Ireland at St. Patrick's Cathedral, head west. And after a pleasant 15-minute walk, you will arrive at St. James Gate. It is there where you'll have the opportunity to pay your respects to another patron saint of Ireland, St. Guinness. It was there at St. James Gate that a 34-year-old fellow from County Kildare arrived in the year 1759, and he boldly signed a 9,000-year lease on a small, disused, ill-equipped property where he planned to brew ale. His name was Arthur Guinness. After about 40 years of brewing ale, he switched over to brewing porter, which became his sole purpose, and he seemed to perfect the process. And the rest, as they say, is history. Today, Guinness is brewed in 50 countries, and it's available in 120 countries. The country that consumes the most Guinness is the UK, and Ireland has regularly clocked in at second place for Guinness consumption. That is, until January 1st, 2020, when, of all countries, Nigeria surpassed Ireland to hold second place. Now, the brewery is still there at St. James Gate, and you can get the full Guinness experience by visiting their seven-story Guinness Storehouse Museum and going on the self-guided tour. This is the most popular tourist attraction in all of Ireland. Since opening in the year 2000, it has received over 20 million visitors. When you're there, you'll learn more about what you probably already know, that Guinness is more than just a beer. It's almost like a culture. You'll also learn that in spite of its reputation as a meal in a glass, did you know that a 20 fluid ounce pint of black custard, which is what Guinness is often called, it only has 198 calories. That is fewer than an equal size serving of skim milk or orange juice. So you might want to rethink your choice of beverages for breakfast. But the highlight will be going to the tasting room, which is on the seventh floor, and there you will enjoy a complimentary pint of the black stuff while surveying a spectacular view of Dublin. It really is a cool room. As great as it will be to sip some Irish champagne in the tasting room, it isn't what you'd call an authentic Irish pub experience. Well, don't worry. At last count, there were 751 pubs in Dublin, so you should be able to find one. Irish pubs are famous for three things, pouring a perfect pint of Guinness, live music, and crack. Now, if you don't know what crack is, you haven't been to Ireland. It's a Gaelic word unique to Ireland that really captures the Irish character. It's loosely defined as an enjoyable social activity, a good time. It involves crackling conversation, fun, and entertainment, 
and of course, lots of beer. Now, I've been to Ireland a number of times. As I mentioned before, my brother actually lives there. And there are two things that the Irish are good at, conversation and drinking. Now, the best place to find all of that is just south of the Liffey River, only a 10-minute walk from the Dublin Spire in the Temple Bar area. If an Irish pub crawl is what you're after, you will be in Nirvana when you get to Temple Bar. Probably the best-known pub is the bright red flower-bedecked Temple Bar Pub. It's very photogenic, and you may have seen it before because it is featured in a lot of the Irish tourism literature. But there are dozens and dozens to choose from. Pop your head into the Turk's Head, or the Foggy Dew, or the Old Dubliner, or the Stag's Head, or Bad Bob's, or maybe all of them. Most, if not all, of these pubs have traditional Irish music. So maybe see which artists you like before you decide where you're going to order your Guinness. Now, I certainly haven't been to all of these, but I've been to a few, and my favorite is the Brazenhead Pub. I specifically hunted this one down because it is the oldest pub in Dublin, established way back in the year 1198. And it's everything you would want in an authentic Irish pub. But be warned, Temple Bar is quite touristed, and the prices for a pint of the black stuff tend to be higher as a result. So what if you aren't a beer person? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't also give a shout-out to Jameson's Whiskey. This is the best-selling whiskey in Ireland, although 90% of it is exported, and it ranks as the, as the third-largest-selling whiskey in the world behind Jim Beam and Jack Daniels. And a tour of the Jameson Distillery is another terrific activity of something you want, might want to do when you're in Dublin. You'll learn the super interesting process of distilling whiskey, and of course you have the obligatory tasting room afterwards. It's only a 10-minute walk from Temple Bar, so you'll have a lot of drinking options. It is Dublin, after all. Okay, we've got you walking around Dublin quite a bit, so you might want to keep your eyes open for a few cultural landmarks along your way. I just sent you from Temple Bar to the Jameson Distillery, which is on the north side of the Liffey River. You'll most likely be using an iconic Irish landmark to get there by crossing the Hapenny Bridge. Here's a story with that. At the start of the 19th century, people were shuttled back and forth across the river by seven ferries. As the condition of the ferries deteriorated, the city gave the owner of the ferry service an ultimatum, fix your ferries or build a bridge. So he built an elegant cast iron bridge and was given the right to charge a half penny or a half penny toll for anyone crossing it for the next 100 years. Well, in 1919, 100 years after the bridge was built, the toll was increased to a penny half penny or one and a half pence. But the locals freaked out, so it was dropped back down to a half penny. But today, you can cross the bridge for free, which is a good thing because you probably don't have a half penny in your jeans. It is beloved by Dubliners with over 30,000 crossings every day. The bridge is also beloved by lovers 
as its famous white railings were adorned with hundreds and hundreds of love locks. Now, you don't see a lot of this in North America, but you do see this a lot in Europe. It's when a couple will inscribe their names on a lock and attach it to a bridge to signify their eternal love. Well, things got a little carried away at the Hapenny Bridge as it had so many locks, it was compromising the structural integrity of the bridge. They were worried it might collapse or buckle. So in 2013, 700 pounds of locks were removed. No word on what impact that had on the love-struck couples who no doubt imagined their locks would be eternal. Something else to keep an eye out for are statues that pay homage to many of Dublin's native sons that have contributed to Ireland's rich literary history. Native Dubliner James Joyce is regarded as one of the most influential and important writers of the 20th century, and you'll find his statue on North Earl Street. That might not help you too much, but it'll be a lot easier for you to find when I tell you that it is right beside the Dublin Spire. And that is not hard to find. Oscar Wilde is another favorite son of the city. He was a popular poet and playwright who lived a colorful life that included a criminal conviction for homosexual acts and an early death from meningitis. His most important works are The Importance of Being Earnest and A Picture of Dorian Gray. But he may be even better remembered for his many cheeky and rather truthful epigrams. How good are these? I can resist everything except temptation. A cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. Here's another one. There is only one thing in the world that is worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. And my favorite, how about this one? Be yourself. Everyone else is taken. A lot of truth to all of those. As you can tell, I'm a big fan. So on your walking tour, wander down to Marion Square, and that's where you'll find a whimsical, colorful statue of Oscar Wilde. He's got an impish grin on his face. He's reclined, sprawling on a rock. Marion Square is also where you'll find the famed, colorful, iconic Georgian doors that are yet another symbol of Dublin. The story here is that housing complexes were built all to look the same and there's little room between the individual houses so homeowners would paint their doors in bright original colors in order to set them apart from the neighbor's house. Although it was previously used to identify the home, it has now become a significant characteristic of Dublin itself. Photos of these colorful, unique-looking doors can be found on postcards and calendars and souvenir shops all around the city. So when you're visiting Oscar Wilde, get your own pictures at Marion Square. But I have yet to mention the most famous piece of street art in Dublin. It is the undoubtedly the most significant piece of street art is the bronze statue of Molly Malone pushing her fish cart. The statue is based on a song that tells the fictional tale of a fishwife who plied her trade selling fish on the streets of Dublin. It was unveiled to celebrate the Dublin Millennium Celebrations in 1988. Now, in the intro, I promised you a busty woman, and Molly certainly fits that description. You'll know Molly when you see her. 
as she is, shall we say, rather well-endowed, wearing a low-cut blouse. Let's just say that certain parts of the statue have been handled more than other parts, so some of Molly's bronze anatomy has been shined up more than the rest of her. Trust me, there is no way you will be able to walk past this statue and not take a photo. In typical irreverent Irish fashion, the locals have bestowed a spate of nicknames on Molly Malone. She is commonly referred to as the tart with the cart, the dish with the fish, the dolly with the trolley, or the trollop with the scallops. The Irish have always had a gift for the gab and a way with words. Gotta love it. We mentioned off the top that Dublin is bursting with a kind of lyrical magic and playfulness, with music, poetry, and literature percolating through its cobblestones. Well, Dublin also has an often troubled history that percolates through those same cobblestones. This story will allow us to circle back to the Dublin Spire, which is where we started this episode. Now, we've talked a bit about the Celtic period in Ireland and how St. Patrick converted the population to Catholicism. Well, in the year 841, the Vikings showed up and they established a settlement in the vicinity of a dark tidal pool where a stream met the River Liffey. The Gaelic word for dark pool is Dub Lin, and voila, the settlement now had a name. And this settlement thrived. For most of the 10th century, Dublin was the Viking world's largest city. It traded from Iceland to Constantinople. That lasted until the 12th century when an Anglo-Norman invasion introduced the English to Ireland. King John founded a fortification there in Dublin in the year 1204. This is the origin of Dublin Castle. Now, I promised you a castle in the introduction, and this is it. The castle is impressive in its own right, but there is another reason to visit. This was the seat of the British government's administration in Ireland. In other words, it was the headquarters for the English domination of Ireland. There's a free tour that is outstanding, and it's a terrific way for you to get a sense of Irish history and how the English oppression has forged itself onto the Irish consciousness. The one thing, or you'll learn many things, but one thing you'll learn is that Dublin Castle was the heart of the English-controlled area known as the Pale. Any Englishman who ventured outside the safe regional boundaries of the Pale was putting himself in grave danger from the uncivilized Irish barbarians who lived, quote-unquote, beyond the pale. That's where we get that expression from. When we talk about someone who is outside the bounds of acceptable behavior, they are beyond the pale. And that would certainly describe what an Irish barbarian would do with a proper Englishman who dared to tread on his turf. There is an 800-year history with many examples of abusive British policies in Ireland, including their brutal mismanagement of the Irish potato famine, and that resulted in Ireland losing a full one-third of its population due to death, starvation, or emigration. In the year 1808, a monument was erected on Sackville Street in Dublin, and that rankled a lot of Dubliners. 
It was a granite pillar adorned with a statue of Admiral Horatio Nelson. Three years earlier, Nelson had defeated Napoleon's navy in the Battle of Trafalgar. And in this battle, Admiral Nelson died. So smack dab in the center of Dublin, there's a memorial dedicated to a revered British military hero. Now this symbolism was not lost on Dubliners who ever since the year 1169 have been under the oppressive control of the English. Like I say, it rankled. Throughout the 19th century, there were calls from Irish nationalists to have it removed or maybe replaced with a memorial to an Irish hero. Then came 1916. The United Kingdom was preoccupied fighting the First World War, so that seemed like an opportune time for Irish Republicans to launch an uprising against British rule with the aim of establishing an independent Irish Republic. On April 24, 1916, which was Easter Monday, the rebels seized several prominent buildings, including the General Post Office on Sackville Street, and that's where they set up their headquarters. This was right next to Nelson's Pillar. A declaration was issued from the post office announcing that Ireland was now a republic and it would be ruled by a provisional government. In the days that followed, Sackville Street, and particularly the area around the pillar, became a battleground. It was a war zone. British artillery fire had set much of the street ablaze. But through it all, as one writer reported, quote, Nelson surveyed it all serenely on his pillar as though he were lit up by a thousand lamps, unquote. It was perhaps because of this that an attempt was made by the rebels to blow up the pillar, but the explosives failed to ignite due to the dampness. Imagine that, damp weather in Ireland. But for Admiral Nelson, that was a good thing. Well, as you can well imagine, the outcome of the uprising was a foregone conclusion. With much greater numbers and heavier weapons, the British army suppressed the rising in six days. By then, many of the buildings on Sackville Street between the Pillar and the Liffey River had been destroyed or badly damaged. And how did Nelson's Pillar fare? fare? After all of the bombs had burst and the bullets stopped flying, the column was relatively unscathed with the exception of a shot that took off Nelson's nose. It remained standing as a reminder of the oppressive British. Who did not remain standing were the leaders of the uprising. Sixteen of them were sent to the infamous Kilmainham Jail. Now, there are a lot of awesome things to see and do in Dublin. But more than anything, I want you to go to this jail. I want to send you to jail. Believe it or not. Kilmainham Jail is the number one rated landmark in Dublin on TripAdvisor. It was built in 1796, and this is where the ghosts of Ireland's struggle for independence are felt. The 16 leaders of the Easter Uprising did not have a long stay in the jail as they were executed in May of that year. Joseph Plunkett was one of the rebels. Seven hours before his execution, he was married in the prison chapel to his sweetheart, Grace Gifford. Grace's sister, Muriel, was already married to Thomas McDonough, and he, and he had been executed just the previous day. 
Grace Gifford never married again. The Rising brought physical force Republican to the forefront of Irish politics, and opposition to the British reaction to the Rising contributed to changes in public opinion and the move toward independence. Two and a half years later, Sinn Féin party won an election and they declared independence. A three-year civil war followed until the Irish Free State was finally formed in 1922. One of the first things the new government did was to decommission Kilmainham Jail. At that time, there was no interest in preserving the jail as it was seen as a site of oppression and suffering. The jail fell into disrepair and it was almost demolished. But over time, interest grew in making it into a monument to Irish independence. It has now been completely restored and houses a museum on the history of Irish nationalism with absolutely fascinating tours. I loved this tour. It includes a heart-wrenching stop in the prison yard where the leaders of the Easter uprising were executed. It is the most important monument in all of Ireland paying tribute to the struggle for Irish independence. It is also the biggest unoccupied prison in Europe empty of prisoners, but filled with history. Okay, let's get back to Sackville Street, site of the General Post Office and Nelson's Pillar. The newly formed Irish Free State set out to reshape the country, hence the decommissioning of Kilmainham Jail. Sackville Street was renamed after a prominent Irish Catholic nationalist. Today, it is called O'Connell Street. The General Post Office was rebuilt. Its grand interior is impressive, and you should definitely stick your head inside and have a look when you visit. But what about Nelson's column? It remained, and it continued to rankle. In 1966, 50 years after the Easter uprising, a group of former IRA members finally took care of that. A massive bomb destroyed Nelson's pillar, getting rid of it once and for all. Most Dubliners were positively giddy at this turn of events. Numerous songs were inspired by the incident, including Nelson's Farewell by the Dubliners and the immensely popular Up Went Nelson, which remained at the top of the Irish charts for eight weeks. Apparently, the Irish president at the time, Iman de Valera, phoned the Irish press to suggest the headline, British Admiral Leaves Dublin by Air. By the way, you can see Nelson's rather battered head today, which is on display at the Dublin Public Library on Pierce Street. But it left a gaping hole in the center of O'Connell Street, forever transforming the streetscape of Dublin. What to put in its place? Which brings us full circle to the end of the century and the spire of Dublin. The place where Nelson's column had stood remained as a scar on O'Connell Street. Finally, in 1988, an Irish artist was commissioned to create a sculpture to fill that spot for the Dublin Millennium Celebrations. It was a bronze sculpture of a young woman reclining in a pool of water. Now, you know the Irish and their nicknames. This statue was immediately dubbed the Floozy in the Jacuzzi. Pretty cool, but not an especially inspiring statue. How about something grand? Well, they got around to 
concocting a grand scheme for something to put in that spot. And they held an international competition and a huge number of submissions for something that they could put that would be really inspiring to represent the city of Dublin. The jury settled on this massive stainless steel needle design. Now, opinions are divided on this thing. What does it mean? And how does it really represent Dublin, the city of music, poetry, literature, literature, and history? The thinking seems to be that it is meant to toast Dublin's bustling present, and it points forward towards a limitless, brighter, and more prosperous future. Mm, I don't know. Impressive and eye-catching it may be, but is it culturally or historically significant? The nail in the pail, the stiletto in the ghetto, the stiffy by the liffy, or as we found out, the erection at the intersection. I think they may have missed the mark. This has been the 10th and final episode in season one of Snapshots from Europe Travelogue. And I can tell you, this episode was one of the most challenging to put together. I was hoping to build a narrative that included some of the main things you'll want to see and do when you're on your trip to this wonderful city. So let's quickly review. I mentioned 10 things I think you should try and see and do when you're in Dublin. See if you can remember them. We have the Leprechaun Museum, also known as the Louvre of Leprechauns. We have St. Patrick's Cathedral. You'll want to go to Trinity College to see the Book of Kells. Of course, the number one tourist attraction in the whole country, the Guinness Factory Tour and their tasting room. I don't have to tell you to do a pub crawl in Temp Bar. You can probably figure that out yourself, but maybe have a pint of the black stuff at Brazen's Head if you can. We also talked about going on the Jameson Whiskey Distillery Tour. I've done this tour and it really is terrific. You'll want to cross the Hatpenny Bridge. And you'll want to do a walking tour to check out the street art like James Joyce, Oscar Wilde, and the tart with the cart, Molly Malone. And I didn't even mention Grafton Street, which is the best place for buskers, street entertainment, shopping, and people watching. You'll definitely want to visit Dublin Castle for their excellent tour, and you'll get a very good backstory on the history of the English involvement in Ireland on that tour. And one of my favorite things to do in the whole country, that trip to Kilmainham Jail, where you'll learn all about Irish independence. That was very moving, and I'd highly recommend that. And of course, the 10th thing to do, where we started and finished with our episode, visiting the Dublin Spire, where you can have your opinion on what it tells you about the city of Dublin. I'd say you need three days to do justice to Dublin, and once you've been to Dublin, you'll want to go back. I have to say, after doing these podcasts on 10 different destinations in Europe, that is what has impacted me the most. As I've prepared for each episode, I felt such a strong desire to return to all of these destinations. Barcelona, Berlin, French Riviera, Gibraltar, Venice, St. Petersburg, Istanbul, Santorini, Lisbon, and Dublin. In the trailer, when I started off this podcast, I made the bold statement that Europe is the best continent on the planet to explore. 
I am more convinced of that now more than ever. But we're just getting started. This is a wrap for season one, but I've got lots of ideas for season two. I hope to have another 10 episodes for you in hopefully fall of 2021. I mean, we have yet to go to London, Paris, and Rome. What about Stockholm or Florence? Malta? I might even throw in Jerusalem. There are so many places we still have to explore. So feel free to contact me on my Instagram, which is Snapshots Travelog, one word, or search up Brian Unger on Facebook, and there you'll find pictures of the Dublin Spire and many of the other Dublin attractions I've talked about in this episode. I might even include a picture of the busty Molly Malone, the tart with the cart. And while you're there, feel free to leave any comments or questions, and I'm totally up for suggestions for destinations to explore in season two. This has been my first experience podcasting, and it's been a blast. Thanks to all of you for coming along for the ride. And as always, keep calm and travel on.